So let's open our Bibles together in the book of Exodus. We're going to read from verse from chapter chapter 19 from verse 1 and then we're going to read into chapter 20. So first of all Exodus chapter 19 verses 1 to 6. At the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall ye say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice, and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. Then we go to chapter 20 and verse 1. And there we read... Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. Then the people stood at a distance while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you uh, this morning. Thank you for inviting me. I'll come again, probably, on other... Well, I hope I'll come again on other (laughs) occasions after this morning. Um, I guess it's common knowledge to us all that the Bible is divided into two parts. Uh, There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. Did you know that fact? Good, you're a well-instructed church congregation, obviously. But do you know where the term or the title or the name the Old Testament actually comes from? Well, you should know by now because you've just read the passages in Holy Scripture where we read about the ancient covenant, the Old Testament, as it's otherwise called, that God made with the people of Israel at that mountain called Sinai. And you could think to yourself quite accurately that everything in the Bible up until this point has led to this moment. God called Abraham and the patriarchs and preserved them and kept them through times of famine and difficulty. He led them into Egypt and kept them safe when they were there, but then liberated them from the slavery into which they had fallen, led them through the wilderness to come to this mountain, to come to this place where God, the creator of all things, would enter into what is called a covenant with these people to be his people. A covenant is an agreement, a solemn commitment between two parties. And the two parties concerned here are God, on the one hand, the superior partner, it has to be said, and Israel, on the other hand, the inferior partner, whom he had recently set free from their slavery. And if everything up to this point has led to this moment, then it also has to be said that everything after this point comes from these moments. The whole story of what we call the Old Testament, what Jewish people call the Hebrew Bible, the whole story of Israel is about a people who failed to keep the covenant except for certain times of revival in their history when they just just about managed to get there. And the story of Jesus that we look to and celebrate today is the story of the extension of that covenant 
not just to Israel, but to all the peoples of the earth who may share in a living, committed, enduring, gracious, covenant relationship with God. And so we are the people of the new covenant. And the story that we've read today is also our story. It's also where we come onto the scene because we are part of the story of God's covenant with human beings. So I'm very grateful that although um, I didn't ask to preach on this passage, it was given to me, it's kind of a taxi rank situation where you just take the next passage that's coming along. I'm very grateful that this one has fallen to me because there are a few more important passages in the whole of the Bible. And you probably noticed as we read it that there is a profound theme of holiness here. I want to investigate that theme and I've got four ways of speaking of it today just to let you know uh, where we're likely to go. If you can count up to four then you'll know that relief is imminent (laughs) and uh, the, the coffee and the tea that we've been promised are likely to come. But first of all there is a story here about holy fear. Now I know that you and I Being good Christians, we don't like to think about fear. We don't like to think of people relating to God in fear. But we have to acknowledge that it's here, and it's here in spades. Here the people are at the mountain, and they're afraid, because strange things are going on. God has come down, and is in the mountain. And it's a story about darkness and about trembling and about a trumpet sounding and about thunder and about lightning. Because that's the kind of thing that is likely to happen when God is unleashed. God is mighty. God is holy. God is not, despite the fact that you've heard it many times, probably even from this pulpit, God is not a perfect English gentleman. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the quintessence of all power. He is essential, raw holiness. And to stand in God's presence is to know what it means for your life to be threatened. That you are likely to be annihilated by a power that is infinitely greater than you or I or anything in this world could be. Are you getting the picture? You know, it's not quite what you expected probably when you came to worship at Lynn Baptist Church this morning, that we would learn about holy fear, about the holiness of God. Raw holiness is the way I think about it. Actually, I saw a television program many years ago which uh, illustrated this for me by quite a famous um, author whose name I've forgotten. He was so famous I forgot what his name was. And it wasn't about Mount Sinai, it was actually about Mount Zion. It was about Jerusalem, another mountain. The mountain where the city of Jerusalem is to be found. And some of you have probably been to Jerusalem. Nod if you have at this point. And the rest of you, perhaps we can arrange to go there someday together and enjoy it. But the first thing you do when you go to Jerusalem is that you get on your coach and you go up the Mount of Olives... And you overlook the whole city and probably you'd be there very early in the morning when the sun was rising, shining upon Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is built out of limestone. So when the sun shines upon it, it glows. It's called Jerusalem the Golden. 
and not for nothing. And this particular author, going around Jerusalem, investigating all its corners and its nooks and its crannies, he likened Jerusalem to a nuclear reactor, glowing with energy, energy that is incredibly powerful. And to go into Jerusalem is to become contaminated, like you would be by radiation. And that's what it's like here on Mount Sinai. The people are told to keep at a distance. There's a cordon sanitaire thrown around the whole mountain so that neither people nor animals could actually go up to this huge mountain reacting with the raw holiness of God. I think that's a great picture. And it's a reminder to us that we should not trivialize God. Actually, we do much of the time. In our language, we speak of God as if God were no longer Lord of heaven and earth, but someone we keep in our back pocket just in case things go wrong. And that's to fail to understand the God who is revealed in Holy Scripture who is here on Mount Sinai and the fear of whom falls upon the people. Don't let God speak to us, they say. You speak to us, Moses. You can be our mediator. You can go into the dangerous place where we stay out here in the safe place. But don't let God speak to us because this we are unable to bear. I wonder if you've ever felt that about God, actually whether you've ever felt overawed by divine majesty. It's part of the education that the people of Israel were undergoing at this stage of their journey. They were discovering that they could not mess about with God. And that lesson is a lesson that they transmit to us also, that God is to be worshipped and adored in his infinite majesty but not to be trivialized, not to be taken for granted, not to be treated as if he were just another human being like you or me. He is so much more. Some of you have probably read that series of books called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. I read it many years ago. I I have to say I wasn't a child, I was an adult by the time I read it, because I I hadn't been very well brought up, uh, hadn't read the necessary things like Paddington Bear and Rupert and all of those things in my childhood. So when my children were small, I had to catch up in order that I could know what they were talking about. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, uh, is a wonderful series in which Christ is pictured as a mighty lion, Aslan. And there's a great moment where Aslan appears on the scene And some child says, is he safe? (laughs) And Lucy, one of the heroines, she says, of course he's not safe. But he's kind. And that takes us to the second thing here. The holy love of God. We read from Hebrews earlier on, and it's a parallel passage to this. And actually, it begins by saying, you have not come to Mount Sinai. Now, you'd expect it to say, you too have come to Mount Sinai. But actually, what the writer in Hebrew says is, you've not come to Mount Sinai. This is not your experience of being terrified. Because you have come to a God concerning whom you know that he is compassionate and that he is gracious. 
and he's given us his son and his son has shed his blood in order to cleanse us from all sin in order that we might enter God's presence without fear. You can imagine the blood of Christ almost like a decontaminant that makes it possible and safe for us to enter the zone of divine holiness. And it's not as if that just appears in the New Testament. It's here also. Because God also speaks here about his steadfast love. Chapter 20 from verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them. I am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation. But notice this. But showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. And earlier on, it's spoken of those eagles' wings. Remember, says God, I brought you on eagles' wings out of Egypt, out of your captivity. I set you free. I set my love upon you, and I set you free And I have brought you to this place. And in this place, yes, of course, you must learn about holy fear. But do not forget that the one who is not safe is also kind. The kindness of God. Now, we have trouble with these verses, I have to say. We don't like to read this bit about uh, God being jealous and punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation. At least uh, people I talk to, they have problems with those verses. And when you read this verse, they immediately hone in and say, this is a problem, isn't it? Is God like that? Does God punish people for things they've not done just because their grandparents did something that was wrong? And actually, um, it's a good question to ask because in Ezekiel chapter 18, it says precisely the opposite. It says God punishes people for the things they do, not for the things that other people do. And he rewards people for their own righteousness, not for the righteousness of their parents or their grandparents. And so Ezekiel chapter 18 seems to say something different from what it says here. I think there's a way of resolving this. And if you do ask me to speak again sometime, I might uh, try and resolve it for you. I'm not going to try and do that now. I'll leave it hanging over you like the sword of Damocles. Because the real point is this. It's the contrast between three and four generations and a thousand generations. Here's this contrast. That the love of God, the compassion of God, is infinitely greater than the wrath of God or the fear that we rightly feel in God's presence. For a brief moment, God says later on to Israel, I forsook you but with everlasting kindness I will receive you back to myself. And therefore, quite rightly, we're not coming to Sinai in naked fear of God's raw holiness. We're coming to Mount Zion. We're coming to the place where a sacrifice has been made that enables us to draw near to God and to experience and know the holy love of God. The holy love of God, which has no truck with evil, which does not tolerate evil, but resists it, but is still a quality of love beyond our capacity to imagine. A love that is infinitely generous, 
a love that saves, that redeems, that sets free, as God did with Israel and as God has done with us through Jesus Christ and his saving sacrifice upon the cross. So it's appropriate, actually, for us to come today with joy, with confidence. It's with confidence that we can enter God's presence. Because we believe we have glimpsed the true nature of this God in all his holiness and all his majesty. His true nature is steadfast love. To choose people and to show steadfast, consistent, covenant care towards them. And that's the third element here of the divine holiness. It's in chapter 19. God says, Now therefore, if you obey my voice, verse 5, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured people. My treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. This holy God whom we revere and whose presence causes us to bow down and acknowledge his infinite majesty. This God who is loving beyond our capacity to fathom, has a holy purpose. And that holy purpose is to have a people. A people who will be his treasured possession, who will be a kingdom of priests, who will be a holy nation. This is the story of the people of God, which God had in mind from before the foundation of the world which he began to enact in his choice of Abraham to be the father of a great nation, which he stayed true to through all the ups and downs of the patriarchs and the captivity in Egypt, and which now here at Mount Sinai, at this place of ancient covenant, at this place to which everything so far has led, and from which everything else will lead on, he now states his purpose. It is to have a people. A holy people. Now it's not that God only loved Israel or only loves the church. God makes it absolutely clear here that the whole earth is mine. Everything in this creation and all the people that are within it is God's. He made it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything belongs to God. But God has a purpose within his purpose. His purpose of creating all things was that then he might choose a people from the nations of the earth who will particularly represent him and be witnesses to him. And if we were to read other passages, we'd discover 
that it says, uh, it's not because you were greater than anybody else to Israel. It's not that you were more numerous or more noble or more godly. I chose you because you were weak, because you were poor, because you had nothing to commend you. I chose you in order that I may make something of you. And when I did make something of you, when I made you into my treasured possession, people will be able to look upon you and say, God must have done this because they didn't do it themselves. They amounted to nothing. But look at them now. Look at this holy nation that God has called. God must be doing something here. And God must have all the glory for what it is that God is doing. This is so fundamental to the biblical story and to our lives. Um, You're not here because you chose to be here. Well, you did choose to be here, but you chose to be here because, first of all, God chose you. He set his love upon you. He pursued you like the hound of heaven. Anybody had that experience? You tried your best to get away from God, but God wouldn't let you get away. He pursued you. Before you ever began to think of him, he'd already thought of you. He'd already factored you into his plan and his purpose. And there's not one single one of us here today who is here because we deserve to be here. We are here because God, in his steadfast love and sovereign choice, has called us. And he's given us a vocation. He's given us a task like Israel. You see, we are the greater Israel. God's purpose in choosing Israel was not to favor Israel alone, but that through Israel all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That goes back all the way to Abraham. I will choose you and bless you and make of you a great nation, and through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And uh, I guess most of us here aren't Jewish by birth or descent. We are Gentiles. But we are here because of the purpose that God began with the people of Israel. And which is now extended to us. So that we too can be God's treasured possession and his holy nation and his called and chosen people. Uh, There's no reason here to congratulate yourself. And pat yourself on the back and say, aren't we good? Of all the people in Lynn, we are special. Well, you are special. But it's not because there is anything special about you. You're just ordinary. Except that God has called you and brought you into his purpose to have a people. And when we think of it that way, there's no room for boasting, there's no room for self-congratulation, but there is every need for us to say, and what is it that God is calling us to do? What is it that God is calling us to be? For the sake of the peoples of this town, of this nation, and of this world, what is it that God is calling us to be? And that's the fourth area that we want to look at, which is to do with holy living. Now, I think probably when um, I picked up these chapters as my uh, special commission today to preach on, uh, my attention would have been drawn to the Ten Commandments, so-called. 
I'm sparing you. I mean, I'm turning my choice now into something that you should commend. I'm sparing you a ten-point sermon on the ten, ten Commandments. You know, you could do a whole series on the Ten Commandments. That's another thought, isn't it? Might be worth uh, worth doing that. Uh, taking them, you are doing that. Well, there you take take them in turn and examine them in turn and say, how is this still relevant to us today? Well, I'm not going to go through them in detail because, as I now know, that's going to happen at another time. Um, but let's look at them in general. In general, God is calling His people to be so responsive to Him, so responsive. Not out of fear, but out of love. Because God has brought us on eagle's wings to himself. Therefore, it is no hardship to be obedient to this loving God. It is the natural thing to do when you have been shown so much love and kindness. You respond to God and you obey God. Not because you fear God that he might punish you but because you love God, that he has shown you so much grace. But this, Moses says, is the shape of your obedience. These Ten Commandments indicate to you what kind of people Israel were supposed to be. First of all, they were to be a people who acknowledged God as their God. And then they were to be a people who did not make idols and images because God cannot be portrayed in the likeness of anything that is upon the earth. And then God says, and these are the ways that you need to live. You need to make sure that you honor your mother and father, that you do not murder, that you do not steal, that you do not covet other people's gifts, that you don't take the name of the Lord in vain because the name of the Lord is holy and precious. And because you revere this God. And this is the shape of what a holy people might look like. And actually, if you read on into chapter 21, and all the way through the books of Leviticus and whatnot, there's an awful lot more that God has to say about the shape of a holy and godly life. And that too is surely what our response to God is meant to be. We might debate about some of these commandments. We might debate about the Sabbath, for instance. Should it be Saturday or Sunday? Well, Christians have kind of done a little bit of fancy footwork and they've pushed that towards Sunday rather than Saturday. And there are variations that we might say are perfectly valid when you begin to apply these commandments to a wider community. But the shape of our obedience is basically set out here. And Jesus summarized these commandments. When Moses came down from the mountain, you may recall he had two tablets of stone. Because of the people's disobedience, he threw the two tablets down and broke them. And only when the people had begged for forgiveness and Moses had gone back up the mountain did he come back with those two tablets made afresh. And those tablets of stone were kept in the Ark of the Covenant within the tabernacle in which, through which, the people of Israel worshipped their God. And on those two tablets of stone, according to the way Jesus interprets them, 
uh, and he himself was following traditional Jewish interpretation. There are two fundamental commandments enshrined here. The first is that we should love God with everything that we have and everything we are. And the second is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And these two things, says Jesus, they, uh, they summarize. They, the law and the prophets, they all hang upon these two fundamental dispositions. The disposition to love God and something which follows from it, the disposition to love other people whom God also loves. And this is the shape of a holy life, of a good life, of a God-pleasing life. It's not fashionable today to say that you want to be a good person. It's fashionable to say that you'd like to be cool or to have street cred or to have people respect you and admire you. But that's not the shape of a holy life. The shape of a holy life is one in which we learn to love God and in which we learn to love each other. And so if we began with raw holiness in the presence of God, what we end with here is moral holiness, living lives which are good, which reflect the goodness of the God who has brought us into his covenant, that we might be a holy nation and a treasured possession of the one that we adore. I'd like to be good. I'd like to love God. I'd like, as I get older, to love God more. I'd like to love people, too, to love my neighbor. Sometimes it's quite difficult loving your neighbor. But I'd like to love more and more as I grow, I hope, I trust, in living a holy life. And I believe that's the best intention of all of us who are here today, that we should be holy as God is holy. Let us pray that that may be the case. Lord, you are mighty. You are great. You are beyond our capacity to imagine. There is nothing on this earth other than Jesus which could be an image of you. But in Jesus, your Son, we see you as you really are. Thank you that you've not given up upon this world, but you have been at work in it through countless ages, fashioning people for yourself. Thank you that you have been faithful to your people through the centuries. And thank you that today we can be in this place and we can hold our heads up high, not because we are righteous, but because we are graced by your loving care. We pray that as a church we might grow in holiness that we might worship you as you deserve, 
and serve you in a way which is honouring and glorifying to you in this world. So accept and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.